This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Welcome back to a new season of Technically Human. To kick off the year, I wanted to start out with a topic that has been coming up for me increasingly as I talk to people in Silicon Valley. Free will. Why free will? Okay, I know it might seem a bit odd for a show about ethics and technology to feature what might seem like a purely philosophical concept, but spending time talking to folks in the tech scene, I discovered that the topic of free will comes up quite a lot, and I wanted to understand why. The conversations made me wonder what it is about our technological culture, and maybe even our technologies themselves, that has reinvigorated this ancient debate which extends back into the earliest philosophical traditions, and which is crucial to any concept of ethics. In an age of algorithmic predictions, with tech companies and digital technologies that can anticipate and pinpoint our every move, can we still have free will as we know it? What happens to free will when our genetic technologies can plan what we'll look like, how physically able we'll be, and even who we're likely to become? How free really are our actions when where we decide to eat is influenced by review sites that calculate our personalities and promote certain options that it thinks we'll like while promoting paid sponsors? Where how we spend our money is dictated by data giants who tell us what we should like, and where even who we love is determined by dating apps how do we understand freedom of thought and action in an age where our biotechnologies not only record, but also predict and prescribe how thoughts move around in our mind and how those thoughts become actions? To understand these technologies, I turned to David Lawrence, the author of Are We Biochemical Robots? A book that he wrote in response to Sam Harris's popular argument against free will, a viewpoint endorsed by many in Silicon Valley. Lawrence, who holds a degree in philosophy from UCLA and a degree in law from USC, is a philosopher and social critic and a philosophical proponent of free will, opposing the determinist views held by many new media personalities. Here's our conversation. Hi, David. Hi. Let's actually just jump right into it. You've titled your book, which is a sort of defense against a particular kind of popular cultural takedown of free will. Mm -hmm. uh, the title of the book is Are We Biochemical Robots? Sam Harris's Argument Against Free Will. So this is a book that has a specific polemic against this kind of popular cultural argument that Sam Harris has elevated and is promoting. Can you tell us a little bit about Sam Harris's argument? What is it? And what about that argument made you want to write a book specifically as a rejoinder to his particular argument? The um, <clears throat> subtitle is, I think, actually Sam Harris's crusade against free will. And I, I don't mean <laughs> to correct you arbitrarily, but as you probably know, he made his career writing against polemics against religion, very sort of uh, traditional types of religion, fundamentalist, more or less. And what I'm trying to do with a subtitle, and it's the only reason I, I ran into it, was to establish the fact up front that this is a crusade because. It really is faith-based. There's no facts that support determinism. There's no facts that support his argument. So just a little quibble on, on the subtitle that I wanted to mention. <clears throat> In terms of his argument, he's a determinist. He believes everything is caused by predetermined forces. All of our thoughts, all of our actions, they're not ours. We have nothing to do with them. We are passive victims to cosmic forces. Those forces were unleashed at the time of the Big Bang. They go down a big causal chain of physical causes. And here we think and we talk and we think we're the ones who are thinking and we think we're the ones who are talking and taking action, but it's all been predetermined 14 billion years ago. So that's sort of the basic position. And what's wrong with it? Well, what's wrong with it is it's wrong. <laughs> As I said, it's faith-based. Yeah. To go back to another part of the question you asked, I read the book a few years, was why I wrote the book about this. I read the book a few years ago, and I was pretty much a Sam Harris fan, so to speak. I liked most of his stuff, including those two seminal books about uh, fundamentalist religion. And I read this book, and I sort of put it down, and I said, I, I don't 
understand a single argument in this book. Nothing makes sense in this book. I love you, Sam, but this one you're just off base on. And I, and I then sort of embarked on exploring the topic, a little bit of research, because it was so puzzling to me that his arguments were so off base. And the more research I did, the more off base I found they were. Okay. So you've given us a working definition of determinism, which you oppose, this kind of idea that everything is predetermined from the Big Bang, that all of the causes have already been offset, that we are just passive consumers or actors that are kind of tragically acting out a plot that has already been forecast and pre-written. But I want to talk a little bit about free will, which you oppose to determinism and which is mm -hmm. the topic that you want to elevate and in a sense defend. What is free will? What's your working definition of free will? Are they really opposed to one another? There are several different definitions that people have who write about this kind of topic, but the real bottom line working definition is really what the common sense version is. We make choices, we're free to make them, we have choices, we have alternatives, and our choices influence reality. It really is the basic common sense version of what most people think they mean when we say free will. We can do otherwise, we can influence reality. I mean, I'll play my cards straight. I am a free will enthusiast. And if I had to put a label on it, I would say that I am a, a free will uh, crusader in that sense. I, I'm finding myself, however, more and more in conversation with people who reproduce a form or a version of Sam Harris's argument. Maybe it's because Sam Harris is very popular. They've all heard that argument. It's made mm -hmm. sense. And it certainly, I think, makes good sense to the people in Silicon Valley who I spend a lot of time with who are programmers, for whom it seems like determinism might be a kind of authentic and intuitive kind of way of framing or thinking about the world. But this view has become, as I said, quite popular. And I'm really curious as to what your reasons are for thinking about you know, the, the uh, rationale behind its popularity. What is it about Harris's argument as a kind of polemic of sorts against free will and in favor of this kind of extreme causality or determinism that seems to connect with this current moment? What do you think? Well, I don't think his arguments connect because he has a half dozen arguments that are absurd, wrong, infantile, make no sense. And I break them down in the book and go through each one. I don't think it's his arguments. The arguments are pretty bad. In fact, most of them aren't even arguments. They're just self-fulfilling uh, conclusions that already assume we're determined. Um, I think it's his personality. He, he, as you said, he's a popular guy. People like him. He's likable. He's smart. He has a very good podcast. He's got a very good meditation app. So part of it, I think, is his popularity. And I think a lot of it is he's just resurrecting a scientific point of view, a scientific paradigm. And the scientific paradigm is that we look at things objectively, things work like machines, cause and effect drive everything. Now, that's somewhat of an outmoded scientific paradigm. It's the Newtonian one. And I go a little bit into how that's been superseded by relativity and quantum physics. But the traditional scientific paradigm says that we're cogs in a machine and everything we look at is a mechanistic kind of a process. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that's a big... Um, paradigm of how reality works. And we've had it for three or 400 years going in our brains. Can you give me a little bit of a history of determinism? I mean, Sam Harris is clearly drawing from something or from a body of philosophy. Uh, where does determinism come from? Um, who historically has promoted determinism? Um, and why do you think determinism is so attractive to so many people? Determinism goes back to the ancient Greeks and even beyond. Aristotle had his own version of causes. And I have a little section in the book that sort of runs historically through the various definitions of causation, because what I'm trying to show is that everybody disagrees with each other about what it is and whether it even exists, which is one of the problems with Harris's argument. But I think it's been around even before the Greeks a bit. Um, I'm not a historical expert, but I can tell you that um, there's been all kinds of talk about it forever. And it's very inconsistent and contradictory. In terms of why his argument is impressive, I think it's partly him. I think it's partly the attraction of the scientific outlook. And also, I think that there's a lot of commentators in the new media arena. Most of them are physicists, really good people like Brian Greene and Sean Carroll and others who are talking about it all the time. 
from a deterministic point of view. They're scientists. They just study processes and relate the causes of those processes uh, to each other. So there's a lot of forces pushing towards the determinism. The other thing is, uh, I think something you alluded to, which is that we're living in a mechanistic age and our lives are being taken over by cell phones and earplugs and and everything else. And I think it's becoming a much more impersonal age in a lot of ways. And people are raised to look at their phones and look at their monitors and, and their iPads and everything else. And I think things get impersonal. I mean, call some, some company on the phone and see if you get a real person, right? Not anymore. When I was a kid, you'd call someone and somebody would actually answer the phone. So I think it's become a, a culture of a more impersonal world in many ways. You have artificial intelligence and robots and all of that stuff looming ahead. So it seems to me it's just, just we're thrust into the world of mechanistic images in a way we never were before. As you were talking, a couple of things came up to me, just moments where determinism seemed to crop up as a, a value that gets encoded in an entire culture. I mean, I think about the idea from the Greeks of karaktos or character which essentially for the Greeks meant that you were born with a certain fate and you were a good man. You were a character, you were a true character if you fulfilled that fate. So if you were Achilles and you were destined to die in battle and you died in battle, you were a good man. A good man is a good, good man the same way that the watch is a good <clears throat> watch, does the thing that it's supposed to do, that it was formed to do. And of course we get to our contemporary moment, the line that really always comes back to me when I think about determinism and where I think that determinism <clears throat> casts to me a long shadow is, you know, I think it's crystallized for me in the line in the Kurt Vonnegut book, Slaughterhouse-Five, where he says that a man got up and he did something that he wasn't supposed to do. He got up and gave a screed against war. And this was so surprising because people in that particular moment, he's of course talking about World War II, uh, had become uh, such a set of cogs in a broader wheel of machinery of war that they could not become characters, that they were just subject to the deterministic, fatal kind of excesses of uh, a broader kind of uh, domineering social structure. And I get the sense that that is kind of where we are right now for different socio-political reasons as well. The idea that we are born in a station and however much we would like to think of ourselves as liberal subjects who can self-fulfill and become autonomous in that sense, we are governed by such overbearing uh, superstructures of, of government and the overbearing nature of our station as we are born, that these kinds of structural deterministic forces eliminate or at least severely uh, apprehend our ability to um, self-develop. How, how do you think about that in terms of determinism versus free will? This idea that in our current moment, we are subject to such large bureaucratic machines or such large over-determined social structures uh, that our autonomy and our ability to self-develop is really radically limited. Yeah, and I think this goes to the heart of one of the biggest mistakes that determinists make and, and Harris and the like make, which is there's a huge difference between influence and cause or determinism. We can be influenced by a lot of things. We are. We got a body that we were born into. We were born at a certain time and place. We have certain parents that we didn't elect to have. All of these in a social structure, economics, so forth, and you go on. But the point is that these are influences. That doesn't mean they take away free will. Determinists and Harris have a very absolutist version of free will. So they don't have any concept of influence. One of the definitions Harris gives in his argument is to have free will, you have to have complete control of everything that determines us. And the answer to that is simple. Why? Why? He confuses influence with determinism or causation. And we can be influenced by all kinds of things, as you're saying. They can be big things, structural and political and economic, or they can be little things, uh, how, where we were born and um, how tall we were in our DNA. But all of these things are influences. There's nothing that says they determine who we are. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the big confusions in his book. He's constantly talking about influences. Okay, so yeah. what? We're influenced. We can concede that we're influenced by all kinds of things. That doesn't mean we can't act with choice within the parameters of those influences. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like here you're responding to the kind of uh, sociological 
understanding of determinism. Do you see a kind of consonance or a symmetry between the sociological arguments of determinism and the physical or scientific arguments about determinism? Is there a kind of parallelism in the way that they structure thinking about the world? Or are these two different phenomena, both that seem to corroborate one another very handily for the kind of deterministic argument that Harris is positing? Well, there's a couple of different answers to that. One, one line of answer is all of the big uh, macro and the micro have influence on us from our genes to our social structure, to global politics, to our language, to semantics, everything. So in that sense, they're all types of influences from all different domains and all different flavors and types. On a scientific level, there's a couple of different tracks that you can go down. One of them is the science tests that Harris talks about. And we could go back to, to that. And one of the questions you asked was, why do people believe in his arguments? And one of the reasons in this particular reason is he just miscites and misquotes what they're all about. And who knows, who bothers to look them up? So he says the science tests affirm that we're determined by neural impulses in our brain. And that's not what the science tests say. But if you read it, you don't go look at it, that's what you think they say. So that's one track. We could take a look at the science tests and what they show. The third sort of track in all of this is what, what does physics show, the science of physics, and how is that evolving in a way that either limits the capacity for free will or opens up the possibility of free will. And um, obviously, we have different points of view on that. And I show how the various steps have brought to the, to the table a possibility of free will where it didn't exist under a causally governed Newtonian ironclad causal chain universe and how that's changed. Harris believes otherwise, but doesn't deal with the issues that take us there. So those are sort of the three prongs of that scientific answer, if you will. I want to ask you about one specific dimension of the argument and one specific dimension that you draw out from Sam Harris's argument it revolves around the term biochemical robots, which mm. I understand you take from Harris and that you are in polemical relationship uh, with, its regard, with regard to that term. And you and he use that term biochemical robot as a kind of materialization of determinism to describe, I think, mm. what it would be like to truly believe that we had no free will, that we are on the one hand biochemical and on the other hand, but just robots. We have a framework for thinking about what robots are. As I describe it in my classes, the word robot comes from the word robota. It is first appearing in uh, Carol Kepek's work, R-U-R, where he uses the term metaphorically to describe labori or the laborers who labor under Russian serfdom. And who ultimately, of course, uh, rise up against their overlords. So built in with that idea of robot is this idea of straining against or rejecting determinism and coming into sort of some sort of uh, autonomy or agency. But let's go back to this idea of how we think of robots currently, which mm -hmm. is these deterministic objects that sort of fulfill mm -hmm. a programmed purpose. Why that term? What does this metaphor get at or help to clarify or constellate or understand? Well, I took the term from something in Harris's book. He uses the term to basically say we're nothing but biochemical robots. Hence the term of my title, are we really just biochemical robots? But I think it's a good metaphor for determinism and what he's getting at. Uh, it combines the biological sense that we're living. We're not like rocks. There seems to be something a little different in the processes going on with us and there would be in a hurricane or a, a rock. But on the other hand, we're a robot, meaning we don't have any free will. We follow our, our programming. We do exactly what we're programmed to do. Ever since the Big Bang, we had to think what we're thinking right now and have the talks that we're thinking right now with each other. And the audience who's listening to this is, is, has to have exactly what they're reacting to and they're thinking as they hear my voice and your voice. It's all been pre-programmed and in that sense, we're robots. Uh, we're living robots is essentially the image, and it's a pretty good, pretty good image. So um, when I went to write this, I thought, well, this is a good image to say, are we really just that? Obviously, rhetorically, because I don't think there's any evidence that we're that. It's, it's very interesting to me because the term or the idea of robots goes farther back than uh, Kapek, although he creates the term for it, all the way back to Descartes. 
who thinks that humans are not robots, but of course, non-human animals are robots. They're just kind of under following pre-programmed ideas. And, and your comment uh, and this idea of biochemical robots writ large really makes me think about how our changing views toward, on the one hand, inanimate objects and specifically our digital technologies as programmed objects. And on the other hand, our evolving sense of the planet as animated. How do our changing understandings on the one hand of the planet and on the other hand of our digital technologies maybe change or challenge or transform in a certain sense how we think of ourselves as biochemical robots? Am I right in thinking that not only do our technologies maybe change how we think uh, about ourselves, uh, but also um, our changing understanding of non-human animals and the perhaps broader planet might have something to do with uh, our changing understanding of of how we think uh, about the kind of concept of a biochemical robot? Well, it's funny. It seems to me like there are two different conflicting trends going on. We're getting more mechanistic. We're, we're relying on technology. We're spending our lives somewhat ruled by technology in a lot of ways. And so that's reinforcing the, the side to us that everything is mechanical. Everything is mechanistic. Everything is pre-programmed. This is all just cogs in a machine, and we're part of that machine. On the other hand, if you think about human rights, animal rights, you know, the evolving international treaties about humane treatment and so forth, <clears throat> there's a trend that's going in the exact opposite direction, oddly enough, which is really promoting ethical treatment of animals and humans and prisoners of war and so forth. And the kind of laws we have now to protect the dignity of humans are like 100 years ago, show 100 years ago to be barbaric. So, you know, from women's sufferance to, to, to not experimenting on animals the same, same way, we have that trend going too, where we're more humane and more human and less robotic and less cog-like, which sort of gets into ethics too, mm -hmm. which you alluded to earlier. So I see yeah. this coalescence of these two trends battling each other. I want to hold off on talking about the kind of kernel of the conversation, which is ethics for just a, a second, because we've been dancing around okay. it. But I have one final question about kind of philosophy writ large. And I think one way that we tend to think about philosophy is that philosophy attempts to describe, in a sense, the human condition and then proscribe what, given that human condition, we ought to do if we're talking about ethical philosophy. But mm -hmm. more and more, I've been thinking about not mm -hmm. only how philosophy describes uh, our condition, but also how our conditions, um, in a sense, describe and change our philosophy. And I'm really interested increasingly in the ways that our philosophies grapple with or uh, explain technological culture, but also the inverse, how technologies change or require us to grapple with our philosophies. So for example, in our particular you know, technological moment, I think that there might be ways in which our technological culture is influencing the way that we think about free will, not just free will influencing the way we think about our technologies or our concepts mm -hmm. of free will, mm -hmm. uh, influencing how we think about our technologies. And the philosophy and the philosophical debates around free will, of course, have a very long history. We've touched on a couple touchstones of that history, especially with regard to ethical treatment, including thinkers like, as you pointed out, Aristotle, uh, I, of course, always think about David Hume, who uh, thinks, I think, in radically uh, different ways and his predecessors about causality, um, people like Immanuel Kant, uh, Martha Nussbaum is one of our contemporary philosophers who are thinking a lot about this. Those are some of the major thinkers on the topic. But I've also wondered how our contemporary technologies that are currently available or developing or popular um, might be changing the way that we think about free will, as I increasingly think about the way that the technologies available at the time of, for example, Aristotle might have influenced the way that he thought about free will. So I'm very curious about how our current technologies are changing the way that we philosophize about many things, and, and particularly the, the questions of free will as opposed to determinism. How have robots in particular, or other technological innovations, changed the way that we think about free will. I mean, the robot, as we've talked about, in a sense, provides this kind of metaphor that we use to describe and conceptualize mm -hmm. these beings who act deterministically without autonomy mm -hmm. and to give us a kind of framework for thinking about what they look like and how they behave. Um, have robots, in turn, changed how we think about free will or determinism or whether or not we have 
What's really interesting about this is that it brings up again sort of a focal point where there's a clash of values that determinism is sort of sitting on both sides of. Harris does a lot of good talking about artificial intelligence and how we can control it and what the risks are and how it will get out of hand and so forth. And what's interesting is you have to ask, if we don't have free will, who's making these judgments? Who's going to go ahead and act to control it? Who's deciding what the priorities are and, and what to control? Everything we say about AI is seen through the eyes of a subject who's making ethical decisions and opinions and speculating and processing the facts and making decisions. Well, how is that possible if we're just biochemical robots? What determinants seem to forget in all of this is the person, the first person examining all this stuff and making the decisions and, and making the judgments. Where did they go? So it, it's, it's a very interesting uh, contradiction where you'll hear determinists talk about all of this stuff and forget the fact that if we really don't have free will, there can't be anybody talking about this because it's all mm -hmm. determined and it all goes back to the Big Bang. So who's to consider how we deal with AI? Who can do that? How we deal with that has been determined at the time of the Big Bang. There's nothing to talk about. Let me ask a little bit of a broader question, which has to do with the kinds of scientific principles that are undergirding some of these newer technologies. In particular, scientific principles that try to understand our material world that do seem, as you pointed out earlier, to point toward some sort of broader causal structure governing our material universe and our physical universe. And I think at stake in Harris's argument and in yours is the way that scientific principles, in particular, physical sciences theories that provide kind of causal or deterministic explanation that seem to prove or at least suggest the capacity for determinism in the physical world, the ability, for example, to trace causes and effects across vast temporal or spatial landscapes, or to show connections between causes that might otherwise seem opaque or elective or random. So for example, particle theory, for example, quantum theory, both of which show that the material world has certain inevitable patterns that can be predicted and that are determined. There's a couple of things that I take issue there with, first of all, that particle and quantum theory, uh, and I'm sure I understand it incorrectly, particularly in the places where I think I understand it correctly, seem to be predictive in terms of broader statistical probabilities not in terms of inevitabilities. And of course, statistics and determinism are two quite very different things, I think, for obvious reasons. But maybe you can explicate it and maybe it's not so obvious. But, but those kinds of theories seem to at least suggest or make plausible the idea that the material world has certain inevitable patterns that can be predicted and determined. The broad question is, how have our current scientific and technological theories impacted the philosophy of free will? And the second part of that question is, should they? Is free will as a concept and as a philosophy and as a way of thinking about how human beings behave reducible to the physical properties of our world? Well, there are two different schools of thought. That, that's a shocker. I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll agree. There are those philosophers who opine that free will is alive and living in Los Angeles and other places around the world, and that determinism is nonsense. And they'll cite quantum physics and they'll cite all kinds of other things. Then you'll have the physicists, a couple of whom I named earlier, who'll go on and say that quantum theory doesn't mean that we're not determined. And here's why. And it's a physical universe and everything is, is a causal process. And quantum theory is beside the point. So you have different views of, of this, like everything else in life. As I researched it, it, it appeared to me that the evolving quantum universe show, shows that there's a corridor that keeps opening a little bit more and a little bit more to the possibility of free will. And I sort of trace the steps of that opening. Doesn't mean it proves that there's free will. It hasn't gotten there yet. But every step forward since Newton has opened up another possibility of, of free will. But there are those who say it's absolutely irrelevant, quantum theory, and those who say that it, it proves that there's no free will. I think uh, sometimes, you know, I go back to, based on what you're saying, I go back to that quote, Vonnegut's uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, that talks about this particular moment where the structures mm -hmm. of war and the machinery of fascism, the horrible bureaucracies of somebody like uh, Adolf Eichmann, who describes himself as a cog in the wheel, 
of this broader Nazi machinery. And I think about the contiguities between that kind of overdeterminism that Slaughterhouse-Five, that Vonnegut writes about when he says that these men were such small cogs in this broader universe and machinery that they could not, in a sense, become a character. And when I think of our contemporary moment, I think about our kind of algorithmic moment and the ways in which our algorithmic precision about predictive behavior works in these kinds of feedback loops that are almost orthogonal to one another. On the one hand, we can determine almost precisely, or at least the algorithms can determine with such precision um, and with such inevitability what we are likely to do. And on the other hand, the algorithms are only useful if they can not only predict what we can do, uh, but also nudge that behavior in certain directions. So for example, if I'm a marketer or if I'm uh, trying to sell you something, I don't want to just predict what you want to do. I also want to nudge it in a certain direction that might be advantageous for me. And so in that sense, there seems like there's almost uh, two completely different ideas about um, determinism that are opposed to one another. The first is that we are such small cogs in this overarching machinery of algorithm and, and algorithmic precision that our behavior can be so precisely calculated um, simply because it seems like the algorithms have determined or that at least that our behavior is predetermined to the point where algorithms can pinpoint it. And on the other hand, that kind of pinpointing would make no economic sense if it weren't also able to change our behavior in that way that, as I said, would be advantageous for the person who's creating the algorithm. So the basic premise then that we are determined or behavior is determined, which seems to be the kind of directive of the algorithmic structure is undermined by the way that the algorithm becomes useful. To me, that seems like a contradiction, but an interesting and productive one in terms of thinking about the relationship between determinism and free will. How do you think about that? Well, I've read a lot of science literature and researching determinism, and I don't know of any algorithm that that accurately predicts our behavior in the way that you say. I know of none. There, there are big swaths of people and trends in behavior. And it goes back to that, that sort of fallacy between influence and determinism. Over big swaths of behavior, various predictions can be made, but nothing can predict what a certain person is gonna do, no matter what the consequences are. And the science is pretty darn clear about that. Harris says the opposite, he's dead wrong, and he miscites the, the, the tests, which their own authors say don't, don't mean that we're determined. I don't see any evidence of an algorithm that, that, that does anything other than indicate that over big trends, there's influence. And there's no question there's influence. So I don't think it, it, it affects at all the issue of free will. It's just another label for some influence and strong influence that we're under, like all kinds of influence. Doesn't mean we can't choose. There's an interesting relationship here between physical science theory and the uh, philosophy here of the relationship between determinism and free will. And please correct me if I'm misunderstanding the theory, but essentially what I understand part of uh, quantum theory to describe is the idea that you could predict where certain particles will go or how they will behave as a statistical inevitability, but it is almost impossible, if not fully impossible, I say almost impossible because we don't know yet which technologies or which perceptual acuities will develop um, to precisely determine the behavior of any one particle, even if you can describe the behaviors of particles en masse with almost uh, precise uh, predictive capacity. So I guess the broader question is, is this a good analogy to the way that you're thinking about free will? And I think the broader question is, how does science understand free will if it attempts to understand free will? Should we care? What does it change if science can understand in some way describe or at least correspond with philosophical concepts of free will? Well, science doesn't yet prove it, but it has opened the door for it. Let's go back for a second to the Newtonian universe. Causal chain, everything is cause and effect. Everything happens because of an antecedent event. Nothing uh, can change. Everything was determined back at the Big Bang. Free will was impossible under that paradigm of reality. Just not possible. There was no crack in the door for free will to happen. The next thing that happened was the admission, the scientific admission of randomness. Things can be random and chance. And the interesting thing about chance is that what happens isn't beholden to the past. And this happening versus that happening isn't going to screw up the whole cosmic order of the universe, which would have happened under Newtonian science. 
The other thing interesting about randomness is that novelty came into the world. It's sort of like the reverse of randomness is what is happening, a novel event that couldn't have been predicted, that didn't have to happen, that might not have happened, that has no reason to have happened, just happened. Where did it come from? Well, it didn't come from the prior state of the universe because it wasn't mandated by that anymore. So that move away from the Newtonian causal chain really opened up the door. Then you go to the next step and you have relativity theory and that says that there are certain uh, circumstances under which causation just can't work. Can't work at the Big Bang, can't work during uh, black holes, can't work under any circumstance where space and time get so dense that all the rules of physics are off, all bets are off. And Einstein, who was a determinist, said, hey, it doesn't work. Causation doesn't work under these circumstances. Nothing works. Who knows what's going on? Who knows what's controlling? So that sort of limited causation's reach. And then now we get to the step that you, you started on, which was quantum theory. And quantum theory, as you said, doesn't predict individual particles and how they behave, but it determines a general pattern of where they're going to fall within some range of possibility. But that doesn't mean that any of them are determined to fall that way. They may or they may not. And nothing says that they must fall that way, at least under the mainstream interpretation of quantum theory. And you have to be very specific because there are different theories who wildly disagree, of course, about what quantum theory means. But within a range of a possibility, you don't know. It's not determined under mainstream that the particle is going to appear here. And there's other really weird stuff in quantum theory. I mean, you've probably heard of something called entanglement where a particle is, is measured over here and at the other end of the galaxy, it happens to have the, the opposite spin or rotation. And there's no reason why it does. And there's no communication between the two. And they weren't set up to have opposite rotations when they were created. The rotation's established the second it's measured and yet the other one across galaxies. And it ain't causal because there's nothing physical. There's no medium, there's no communication. Nobody knows how it works. But it does show that there's some kind of non-physical influence going on. Free will would need, if it existed, some kind of non-physical influence because it's influencing physical events in reality. So that's another step that sort of opened up a bit via quantum theory. All of these steps sort of guide us. Maybe they don't prove that there's free will or not. They don't. But they guide us in a direction that seems to look pretty steadily towards the possibility of free will. What you're response reminded me of is that, of course, the nature of a phenomenon is changed by the phenomenon being observed. And so there's a non-deterministic principle as well. Yeah, to, if I could nutshell that for a second for your readers, the, the, the seminal quantum discovery was that, that matter is both a wave and a particle. It behaves like both. And those are contradictory things. Particles are tiny points and waves are spread out in time, completely opposite. And the seminal quantum discovery is that it behaves like both. But the difference is what you just said. If we're looking at them, they behave like particles. If we're not looking at them, they behave like waves, the same thing. And nobody understands in quantum theory how this works. There's all kinds of debates about it, but nobody understands it at the end of the day. So that gets your, your, your observation point about how we affect, like how do these particles know that we're looking at them or not looking at them? There's no contact. And they isolate things so there's no possible contact, and yet they know, and they fall differently on a screen if we're looking at them versus not. Another quantum mystery. And it's another mystery that takes us out of that universe of purely mechanical, physical forces of cogs in process, ba-boom, 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 determining each other since the Big Bang. It sort of puts a crack in that door and says, that's not how reality works. At the end of the day, I think there's two big things that undermine determinism in, in science and that they, that they ought to undermine it to go back to your question. One of them is what I just mentioned, that there's quantum phenomenon like entanglement. There's another one called tunneling that your readers can look up that justify causation. Causation can't possibly explain what's going on. Whatever's going on, it's not causation. And they've done various experiments and proved statistically that causation cannot be operative to get the results that happen in entanglement. So it, 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 it's pretty darn clear. The other thing is that quantum equations accurately predict reality. Causal equations don't. When you line them up, the end of the day is reality works 
the way mathematics says it works. It does not work the way causal equations work. And no matter what side of the issue you're on, you have to admit this. Whether you're a determinist or not, at the end of the day, you have to admit that quantum equations show how reality works and causal equations are only used when they need inaccurate things, when you don't need the best accuracy. So you've got to ask yourself, so what's going on? If causation isn't governing reality, if those equations don't predict what reality is doing and quantum equations do, something else is going on besides causality. So the science that undergirds this kind of determinism is wrong. I will now want to talk about it on an ethical level, which is, I think, where my, my vested interest really lies. I, I will play the rest of my cards and uh, show the rest of my cards. I showed some of them earlier, and now I'm going to show the rest of them. I am what I call a conceptual realist, meaning that I believe in the reality of concepts. I believe in this axiomatically. That means that I really am not interested in being talked out of them. But I think that the axiom as an axiom resides on a basic guiding principle that cannot be proven with evidence. And I believe without a recourse to evidence that there are concepts that are real, that there are things about our material universe that govern our material universe that don't necessarily have an empirical reality, meaning that I can't prove to you that they exist by using a microscope in a laboratory, and we can't see them outside of their effects. So for example, I believe that justice is a real thing, independent of whether or not individual laws carry out or enact justice. If I say something like slavery was wrong, I don't mean it was wrong by the laws of the time. And I certainly don't even mean it's wrong by the laws of our time. What I mean is that on a conceptual level, it violates this principle of justice, which is real, independent of any legal principle that at the time or later uh, describes it to be unfair. And I think that this matters, particularly as an ethical principle to have this kind of reality of concepts, particularly because in the absence of evidence about what to believe, and I think that is, there is, as your book points out, no totalizing evidence for or against free will, we have to make a choice about what to believe. And in that sense, I like to say, that we should choose the belief that coheres with a kind of ethical way of being that's best aligned with what the Greeks called eudaimonia, or very simply, well-being or flourishing. Mm -hmm. Ethics, I think, requires this axiomatic commitment mm -hmm. to the reality of concepts. It's a question about what we should do or what we mm -hmm. ought to do, either in ways that are depending on where your summary of ethical gravity lies, deontological ethics or consequentially maximizing, for example, happiness, or broadly some kind of maximizing the way of flourishing. On a very basic level, the premise of ethics is and presumes necessarily choice. Ought or should are choice words. They're words that point to the fact that we are optimizing or opting or choosing or electing to do one thing over potential other things. The key word here is choosing. Of course, this is also the basis of a legal system, which you as a former lawyer well know, that if I've done something wrong, if I violated a legal mm -hmm. principle, then mm -hmm. I have, in a sense, chosen to do something wrong. I could have chosen to do otherwise. If I violated a law or a person, I'm somehow responsible for it. To me, it wouldn't make much sense to have mm -hmm. a kind of legal system mm -hmm. that operated in this way mm -hmm. if we truly believed that people didn't have the possibility of choosing because why then would we hold anyone accountable, never mind punish anyone, for doing something when mm -hmm. they could not have chosen to do otherwise, when they didn't choose to do that kind of thing because it was determined or predetermined for them? Am I right on this? What's your take? Can we have ethics without the concept of free will? This, this is the most important issue, really, in a way of the whole topic. If, if we're biochemical robots and we do what we're told, we can't be responsible, we can't be held uh, responsible. There's no point in punishing us. We're going to do what we have to do. And you, Mr. Punisher, is going to punish us because you're destined to punish us or not, destined to be compassionate, whatever it may be. There's no point in justice. And there's a whole chapter that I have on this um, in the book. It's, it's really the most important point, as I say. I mean, it's critical. One of the things I pose is what if we taught teenagers in school that they really weren't responsible for their conduct. They don't have any responsibility. What they do is just, you know, whatever they're going to be predestined to do. What's that going to do to the world? Same thing with the adults, I think. It permeates the zeitgeist, as far as I'm concerned, that we're not responsible for anything we do. 
what does that say? Ethics, as you just said, just like my chapter, goes out the door. Responsibility goes out the door. Social responsibility goes out the door. It just doesn't make sense in a determined world. And determinists, as I have a chapter on, fancy dance around this like crazy, and they make no sense. There's a famous physicist that I quote who says, um, uh, everything we do is determined, our thoughts are determined in our head 10 seconds before we think them. And one minute later, she says, but we have developed the capacity for self-control. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, what? We've developed the capacity to self-control? Well, how is that possible? You just said that everything, two completely uh, inconsistent and contradictory statements. And determinists do this all the time because if they don't do it, they can't justify that there's any ethics or any responsibility or any morality. You know, there's another guy who's a famous biologist, gives great courses and, and all that. And, and he says that he'd never seen a neural synapse that just goes off without another neural synapse happening beforehand. So show him the neural synapse that just happens to go off and then we can talk about free will. And then two minutes later, he says, well, we just can't let murderers and stuff run around the streets. We got to grab them up and deal with them. Just like if you have a broken car, you got to grab it and put it in the garage. Okay, those, those are two conflicting statements. Who's going to go out and grab these criminals and put them away? And what are they going to do? And who's going to judge who is a criminal and how you treat them? All of a sudden, we have the ability to control our actions and grab a car and put it in the garage or fix the car and put it back on the road. Really? Well, if we're determined, there's nobody to do that. Biochemical robots can't decide to do any of that. So determinists do this fancy dancing where they talk about how we're determined and two seconds later, they're closet free will advocates. Two seconds later, those are some examples. Harris has many, many examples that I quote in the book. At the end of the day, they're human and they're decent people and they're educated people, determinists, and they want there to be ethics. The problem is they're espousing a, uh, a viewpoint about the world that precludes ethics in the exact way that you suggested. I wanted to talk as we end the conversation a little bit about the, I think, merits of a deterministic environment, not necessarily as governing the way we think or the way we behave in a kind of uh, sense of our own humanity, but the way that our particular moment is compelling and permutating kinds of technologies that seem to impact the way that we move about the world freely with autonomy. The last chapter of the book brings up technologies that may uh, allow us to both override some of the parts of our lives that are determined uh, by, for example, genetics, evolution, the genome itself. But it also seems like on the flip side, the attempt to govern those things or the attempt to create those technologies in the first place is an attempt to kind of create a more fatalistically determined society, right? If I can intervene into my genome or if I can intervene into my, for example, offspring's genome, on the one hand, I am making a choice. On the other hand, my attempt to do so is, I think, implicitly an attempt to kind of fatalistically or deterministically give that offspring a kind of maximal opportunity to succeed or to override certain genetic flaws, potentially, that might hinder them in the kind of structure of society that governs our reality. So what are some of the philosophical implications of these new technologies that seem on the one hand to be intervening into determinism and on the other hand, attempts to pre-program a present and a future? How do technologies in the context of free will relate to some of these mm -hmm. ethical questions that we are bringing up? I think it comes down to intentions and values and ethical values really at the end of the day. We can influence what happens in the future by changing our genetics. That doesn't mean we can determine them. It means we can influence them within certain parameters and we can pick parameters that inhibit freedom and we can pick parameters that enhance the possibility of future freedom. Influences can open up avenues of freedom and close them down. So I think it comes down to the ethics and the values and the morality and the, of the people doing these experiments and to saying, what is their intention? Or is their intention to increase human flourishing and choice and free will and creative expression and prerogatives? Or is their intention to somehow control people for political or social or other purposes? I'm, I'm giving the two extremes there. 
but I think it really comes down to two intentions, ethical intentions. I don't think the playing around with genes and other things is by nature right or wrong, by nature against principles of freedom or for them. I think it depends on the details of who's doing it for what purpose and, and what's the likely outcome. One last question I think we have time for. Um, how does your work inform and what does your work caution you against uh, as we approach these new technologies and deliberate the utility, efficacy, and ethical capacity of them and the consequences of them? Well, I didn't know this when I embarked on the book. I started just writing a 20 to 40 page article as to why Harris's arguments uh, don't work. And that 40 page article became a 60 page, became a 100 page, became a 200 page. And here I am with a full book and having researched all kinds of issues. At this point, I have to say, I really think for the ethical reasons you talked about, it's a very important issue that's far more profound than when I started out just, hey, these arguments make no sense whatsoever. I'm going to play around and see why. I mean, it's the basis of everything we do. You know, there's studies that say that when you expose people to determinism, they misbehave, they cheat, they lie, they enter into antisocial conduct. And those same studies say that when you expose people to snippets of free will and all of that, they behave more ethically. And it may, you know, this is laboratory conditions. I'm not saying it, 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 it absolutely translates to how everything works in the world, but it makes sense, doesn't it? That if you think you're not responsible for your behavior, well, hey, why not cheat on that? Okay, I see that page. I'm not supposed to use that page on the computer. Hey, I was destined to use the page. What the heck? So it, I, I, I think at a fundamental level, it's a, a toxic introduction into the zeitgeist of, of the idea that we don't control our thoughts or actions and we're not responsible. So in what I do in, in talking about the book and going about promoting the book is really getting the idea that this is super important. You don't have ethics. You don't have responsibility. These are things we need to conduct a civil society. And you don't have it if determinism prevails. So to me, it just be, became more of a, a mission. I don't want to oversell that, but it became a serious problem that I didn't realize that really contributes to how we think about things and that permeates everything. Thank you very much, David. Sure.